0: Again, to this glorious book, this letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. I'm going to look at an extensive passage of Scripture that I dare anyone to say that they are sufficient to exhaust the truths in this section of Scripture. It is right up there with Christ's high priestly prayer in John 15. But Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 13 for the full context, and we'll read down to verse 23. The word of God says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. As we continue our, our study today in this glorious Christocentric passage, this letter from Paul to the Colossians, just a very brief reminder of, from our studies over the last two weeks of looking at Paul's introduction from the first greeting to these saints where we saw Paul's offering of prayers of thanksgiving and last week his intercession for their growth in the knowledge and the power of God, bearing fruit in their daily walk to please the Father. And now we come to this this exceptional, this, this incredible passage that's also known and referred to as the hymn of Christ, and it's referred to or called a hymn because of its use of, of relative clauses of the parallelism we see here, of the balance that's in these these verses. And Paul uses this hymn to combat in a very profound way the false teaching in Colossae that, that fundamentally questions the sufficiency of Christ. And this false teaching doesn't appear to deny his lordship but it is adding to the gospel by saying, yes, you started well with Christ, but we know how to take you deeper in the faith and knowledge by means of, of certain teachings, of, of rituals that were not part of the original gospel message. And Paul's greeting began to undercut this idea of something better than Christ or some other light needed beyond Christ And in Paul's prayer, he specifically prayed for the gospel-centered realities, the knowledge and experience needed as a part of their belief and their life in Christ. He is simply telling all of us, if we will continue in the faith to learn who he is and to abide in him, the rest of our Christian life will align with his will. We don't need to go anywhere else or to anyone else other than Christ to find all the resources necessary for our growth in grace, for that deeper knowledge of God and to experience his power in our lives. Before we begin to examine each section of this passage as much as we possibly can, I want to set before you some questions to ask yourself and to keep in mind as we look at these amazing scriptures. These are the same questions that Christ asked his disciples, his followers. And these are the most important questions we can ask ourselves. Who do you think Christ is? What do you think of him? What is Christ like? Do you believe in his supremacy? And do you find him satisfying to your soul? Do you see Christ as truly sufficient for all your needs? You could ask 20 different people on the street today and get and these questions and get 20 different answers or opinions or arguments. Some people know about Christ. Some think he's God. Others who are atheist or even religious-minded will doubt him. They'll doubt his supremacy, his sufficiency. Some consider Christ a great moral teacher or prophet, but not Lord over all. And there's others, even in the evangelical church today, who who acknowledge Christ's supremacy with their words, with their mouth, and even give a a mental assent to the scriptural truth that he is supreme. But in their hearts, deep down, they question his sufficiency, or they don't find him satisfying enough to really trust and rely on him. They may try in, in some ways to to supplement or to add to Christ in, in their lives or to, through a spiritual experience. They, too, may even start with Christ and then move on to other things. Maybe it's, it's works, trying to serve somehow to supplement God's favor and retain that fellowship with him. And that through their works and service somehow, they'll and show their obedience in order to earn that favor from God. It may even be an attempt to find some some deeper spiritual principle that somehow through a mixing, a hodgepodge of Christianity with some other form of religion or worship, maybe worship of creation, some New Age teaching, or even a secular prosperity teaching that this will fill in what is perceived to be some gaps in my spiritual experience. The thinking is that Christ has to be or needs to be supplemented in some way to really enjoy life here and now. The real problem, the real heart issue is not understanding and living in both the supremacy and the full sufficiency that is only found by faith in Christ. Paul, through the Spirit's transcendent power, speaks precisely and powerfully to those conditions that were in Colossae and that are realities in our world today. Maybe even what is occurring in some hearts and lives in our midst. As I said, we could probably spend tens of Sundays examining these six verses and never exhaust them. We won't for all eternity, I don't believe, but... In our brief time today, I want, to, I want to first identify some critical truths, some, some relationships within these verses that will, you can use, that I hope they'll take home and use for further study. And I want to set these before you before we examine closer these verses. The first truth is a relationship that Paul shows between both the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Paul tells us that Christ is ultimately supreme, and if he is supreme, then he is fully and comprehensively sufficient in everything. From the testimony of Epaphras, Paul is aware of the supremacy of Christ in the lives of the Colossian church, that he is the Lord of their lives in the church, and he understands that they're committed to the lordship of Christ. But Paul, he wants to clearly convey to their understanding All of the implications of Christ as being Lord, and in his lordship, his sufficiency. He is sufficient for salvation, and this is nowhere else to be found but in Christ. But he's also sufficient in every daily aspect of their lives, fully knowing, fully caring, fully able to provide and transform within. So first is closely bound, this interwoven relationship of supremacy and sufficiency in Christ. Next is is a relational parallel between Christ as both creator and redeemer. And as an exercise as a part of your studies, if you write out verses 15, 16, and 17 in one column, and you write out 18, 19, and 20 in the other, you're going to see this amazing parallel as creator and redeemer. And this relates right back into our first truth. And we see what Paul repeats here is four phrases. Verses 15 and 18, he uses who is or he is to open each section of the verse. And Paul speaks of Christ as firstborn in verse 15 and of creation. And in verse 18, from the dead. In 16 and 19, Paul uses the prepositional phrases in him or by him. And in 16 and 20, he uses the phrase in the heavens and on earth and on earth or things in heaven. And each of these parallels, Christ's lordship in creation and his lordship in redemption go together. They must go together. They're inseparable because as Christ is Lord in creation... It enables him alone to be redeemer, who can redeem us from any force or power. The Lord of creation rules and reigns over all that he has created and is therefore alone able to redeem those that he has created, those he has called, and those he exercises dominion over. So Christ is both creator and redeemer. And finally, did you notice how Paul purposely repeats these phrases, all things, and he is. Quickly, just looking back over these passages, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 16, by him all things were created, all things have been created. 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 18, he is the head of the body, he is the beginning. 19, all the fullness. 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself. The reason Paul prays that the Lord would give the Colossians and us all wisdom and knowledge of the Lord and experience the power from God, the divine power that is necessary for perseverance, for patience. And now using these phrases, all things, to stress that all things, remember that little word, pause in the Greek, all things have been and are absorbed under the rule and dominion of Christ because they are his. He has made it, and he alone rules over it. And Paul also uses the repeated phrase he is to strongly emphasize just who Christ is. For them, for us, if we are to grow and continue growing in our understanding of who Christ is and all the facets of his glory and attributes, this will keep us abiding in him. This will keep us in his love and on the narrow path of spiritual growth. We'll be able to discern false teaching, able to see that there is nothing else or no one else that can supplement him in this world. And by seeing him in faith, abiding in him, we will humbly and affectionately come to know that he is supreme and he is absolutely, completely sufficient for every aspect of our lives and our spiritual experience. So in light of these three relationships, I want to look at our passage closer today in some detail. and Learn afresh, maybe learn anew. But learn afresh who Christ is and who he would be for us. And may we be edified in the faith. And I'm going to go against my Baptist heritage. And instead of three main truths, I'm going to bring out five main truths. I hope that's okay with everybody. But in this pericope of Scripture, I find, number one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Two, Christ is the Lord of creation. Three, Christ is the head of the church, for Christ is the fullness. And finally, Christ, number five, Christ is the reconciler. Number one, he is the image of the invisible God. This may seem to be a tricky statement, but if we consider both its use in other scriptures and in this grammatical context, we can see that it's intended to be used as a definite noun, which highlights the unique status of Christ. Genesis 1.27, Moses wrote that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this account, to be created in God's image is not to resemble God in all aspects and attributes, but to represent him as the authority over his created realm. And Paul also gives allusions to this Genesis account in Romans 8.29 and in 1 Corinthians 11.7 and other accounts when he looks at Christ. However, in none of these accounts is it conveying Christ as being something less than divine. No, it it is the qualifier in the same verse of the invisible God that focuses on the revelatory function of this image found in Christ. Christ is the true wisdom. He is the intermediary being that provides access to the transcendent God. It is through Christ alone that God's nature and will are made known to his creation. The idea that Christ is not divine is not entering Paul's mind here. God is spirit. This means we cannot see him. We cannot feel him and taste and touch him. And he does not have a body like we do. But Christ has come, cloaked in flesh. And as the image of the invisible God, he has manifested to us what and who the invisible God is like. God in the flesh, God incarnate. Remember what Philip said to Jesus in John 14, 8. He said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. But what was Jesus' response? Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father and have experienced what he is like. If we want to know what God is like, we need to look as the Son, toward the Son, as he is the perfect reflection and image and likeness of the Father, not less than him, but equal to him. The one true visible representation of that spiritual reality which transcends our sight and senses, if we will seek him, to know him in spirit and in the truth of his word. As you remember way back at the beginning of Hebrews, verse chapter 1, verse 3, it says, talking of Christ, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Yes, Jesus is divine and is very God. Jesus bears a special filial relationship to God. It can be seen this way. Just as our sons and daughters or we as sons and daughters are, are represented to our parents, we are no less human than they are. And just so, the Son of God is no less God than the Heavenly Father and is an eternal, everlasting relationship with him. And since he is very God, this is the very core of his power and ability to redeem us from sin. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And now we come to our second truth. Christ is the Lord of creation. Paul says in verses 15 to 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together Jesus Christ is not only the beloved Son of God. He is not only our Redeemer. He is not only the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation and all creation. Now this, too, can be a tricky phrase, and some have brought questions to people's minds, and many false religions have used this, this verse to question the eternality of Christ and his equality of the, of, with the Father, even as the Son And they ask or even promote that there was a time when Christ did not exist. They think that Paul is saying, Christ is the highest of all created creatures. No, the word firstborn, prototokos, means or points to the rank or supremacy of a being or person. And even in the Greco-Roman context in the writings, it refers to the one who is of the highest legal heir of his father's inheritance with all power and authority of the Father over the household. And we must also consider the modifier of all creation, which immediately follows and must be included to grasp the full meaning here. This is because in verse 16, Paul says, for in him or by him all things were created. So Christ is not in the lineage of created order, but he himself brought creation into being, all of it. Paul continues with, with great emphasis on this created realm under Christ to stress not only the earthly realities that for the most part we can see and experience, but also of all the heavenly realities, those things unseen from nations and kingdoms, kings and rulers, presidents and dictators, and also with the unseen spiritual realm that rule under the authority and for the purposes of Christ. In the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, all things have been created through him and see this this part for him. Jesus Christ is not only the creator of all creation. All of creation was created for him. He is the beginning of creation. Wisdom was the first of his works in creation. You find that in Proverbs 8. He is the source of creation. He is the end of creation. So we are restating here with Paul what the author of Hebrews 1, stated in Hebrews 1, 2, that Christ is the appointed heir of all things, that through him also he made the world. And Paul is speaking of a primacy of power here, not a priority in time, but primacy as the one divinely instigating and ruling over all that he has created. Christ is the firstborn, the begotten Son of God, the one and only of a unique kind, loved by the Father and sent for the purposes of redemption. He is the eternal word and stands in the same relation to the first creation, and Jesus Christ, the incarnate, stands in relation to the church. As Christ who is the eternal word brought all the worlds in creation into being, Christ is also the incarnate beloved one who brought the new covenant and the church into being at the cross. Christ is not just the one who created all that has been created, but he created it for himself. Creation finds its reason for being in glorifying him. He not only created it all, but it is for his pleasure, it is for his glory. And because of this, Paul tells us that Christ has the primacy over all creation, and he is alone able to uphold it. He alone holds it all together, and until at the proper time of the Father it has fulfilled its purposes. Christ's glory in creation is a glory and a coherence that goes beyond all philosophical reasoning to find a principle of coherence. It is beyond the efforts of the chemist, of the physicist, of any science to fully understand that great mystery of the binding of unseen energy and force at work within this universe. Paul's telling us in such a profound fashion that Christ is beyond all this. It is himself in which the whole universe coheres. Nothing is outside of his control. And if you are in Christ, Paul is telling the Colossians and us that if you have been saved from these forces of darkness, then you have everything you need to exercise dominion in Christ. Amen? Now this leads us into verse 18 and the third truth. Christ is the head of the church, the glorious head of the church. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Christ is revealing here that Christ, excuse me, Paul, actually Christ is revealing through Paul that he himself has established himself as supreme, as head over the body of believers, that he has redeemed the church. He is its supreme authority, the only head, the only Lord of the church. And this is a great charter of freedom for us as believers. Because being under the authority of Christ in his true church, we must know that no fallible human can make up and interject rules and traditions and teachings into the sphere of the gospel Christian faith that has not been ordained by the Lord in his word. We are truly free to be who the Lord intends us to be as living stones being fit together in his body. And now no one, however spiritual they may seem or profess, has the right to add any commands apart from the Lord and his word for what we are to believe and who we are to be in Christ and his church we are now free under the truth and commands of Scripture to know the head of the church, to take on his easy yoke and light burden. And in this relationship in him, we're protected against foolish commands and dictates of men that bear such an unnecessary load of bondage and legalism and deception. No one has within his own authority or power to dictate or impose on others how they're to live and how to serve as some self-perceived Lord over the church. Anyone who attempts this in some supposed authority in Christ is fundamentally lying and blaspheming against Christ and his word. We are set free from the commandments of men because Christ is the Lord and head of his church. He alone is the source of spiritual life, true life in his body. Christ is our fountainhead of all spiritual life. And if you have life today as a believer in Christ, it is because you are united to Christ by faith through a work of his grace. And it is also true that if you are experiencing this life by faith in Christ, that the work of the head of the body of Christ is at work in you. Consider that for a minute. Paul continues and tells us now that Christ is the beginning, again, the firstborn from the dead. He is, again, the prototokos, not the first to be raised from the dead, for Christ himself raised many from the dead prior to his crucifixion. This firstborn from the dead speaks of his preeminence, his being the special, the exalted status of being raised from the dead, and this after his crucifixion. And in this, we see that Paul is highlighting Christ's supremacy over the new creation. He is, you could say, the head of the group, the head of his household, of those called to be resurrected into glory and affirming the redemptive work of the Son, pointing to the new creation. It is Christ being raised from the dead that is front and center of our Christian proclamation, well, we know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, and our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain and it's worthless and we're all lost and still in our sins, but because Christ is the firstborn from the dead, we also have a sure hope of resurrection life. And this is why we expect, this is why we hope in the fullest sense of this word, That as a Christian, we hope in our resurrection so that we may be with him in glory. If you do not have this hope, if this is all something foreign to you, something unheard of, something that you only hope for in this life only and strive to find some kind of fullness and satisfaction in this world, this time, then I pray, I, I compel you to go to Christ to seek him, seek out his mercy and grace, his forgiveness, so that you too may know, truly know what this hope of resurrection life is within your soul. Christ is our supreme head. He is the ultimate leader of the church and of this church, of this local body, and he carries all authority in our lives to his glory. And with this authority of and in Christ, we also find the fullness of his deity. And this brings us to our fourth truth. Christ is the fullness because or for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. We just saw from verse 18 that Christ, as the firstborn from the dead, will come to have first place in everything. And Paul now gives us the basis of the reason for this eternal plan coming to fruition, because it was the Father's good pleasure. The Father's good pleasure, his intended purpose for the fullness of his divine nature, of his divinity to dwell in Christ. Christ, as the incarnate Son of God, is fulfilling the role of the temple in which we find the full presence of God abiding on the earth. This fullness is a word that the false teachers were using in Colossae to tell the believers that they could attain to the, this fullness or a greater fullness. If they would just conform to these mystic rituals, that they would abide by these food restrictions, that they would believe in these visions that these men saw. And Paul is setting here an unshakable foundation by saying no it is the Father's will that all the fullness necessary is found in Christ. And Paul also says later in the same letter, chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ is fully divine, and it is not only rightly so, it must be so, because in his essence, he is divine. For if Christ was not, his sacrifice would not have accomplished redemption for sinners. Paul is writing here about the honor and the glory and reward that is due to Christ alone because he has fulfilled in perfect measure, perfect attitude, perfect obedience, perfect thoughts, perfect works, perfect adherence to the commandments of God, all the responsibilities as Savior, as mediator, as sacrifice, as high priest, all for the purpose of mediating this new covenant of his blood through his death, being fully man and being fully God. And we could say it this way. The Father is pleased beyond our comprehension with his beloved Son, And the perfection of our Savior's obedience and sacrifice to redeem sinners. All of this fullness is found in him. And this is why Paul declares in Philippians 2, It is for this reason also that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because our Savior humbled himself, because he took on flesh in the form of a servant, and because he died the necessary atoning death on the cross as the only suitable sacrifice for sinful man is also the very reason he was raised again and exalted to that name above every name. This is what can be described as God's covenantal reward to his son, who is our blessed mediator, because he fulfilled everything he told the Father he would do on our behalf. And this is important for us to remember, because Paul tells us that only in him are we more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors because he is exalted to the fullness of the Father Because of the Father's pleasure in his obedience, so we too are exalted in him. Why do we need to look for fullness, for satisfaction, for assurance anywhere else than in the person of Christ? We cannot find, I would challenge you to find anything comparable to his glory, to his honor, to his blessing in this world. All fullness is dwells in Christ, so that through him alone, this universal reconciliation of the elect of God can be accomplished. And what is very striking in these verses is that the focus on Christ as the embodiment of full deity is shown in this section that begins with his death. Paul is showing us how relevant Christ's exalted status is to those who are alienated from God. It is only as Christ is fully divine and fully man that he can be a fully suitable sacrifice to atone for the sins. Comprehend that, the enormity of the sins of many. His fullness is so much greater. And this was only accomplished in the fullness of time at his death on the cross. Paul continues in verse 20 with our fifth, our final truth. Christ is the reconciler. And through him, gloriously through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ is the only reconciler. He is the only way to the Father He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul has stressed the supremacy of Christ in creation, the supremacy of Christ in his church, the sufficiency of Christ in himself, in his person, and now the sufficiency of his work, his eternal eternal purpose in reconciling all things, man and creation. And in this verse, and there's there's such a depth to this, I wish we had time to go into. But to summarize, we see here such a clear expression of that already, but not yet, eschatology. Christ is both the creator and the reconciler. And just as sin, the destructive reality that made salvation necessary for man, this destroyer of relationship between creatures, between members in the church, between families, but ultimately between us and God. So Christ was and is and able to defeat that reign of sin, that power of sin, and he alone is able to restore that fellowship, that communion, that relationship between us and the Father. And he accomplished it fully on the cross of Calvary. This is the purpose of Paul's teaching. This is the purpose of God, and this is the purpose of Christian theology. And the cross of Christ is something we can never leave out, something we can never go around in the gospel realm or go beyond. It is the cross that tells us we were enemies of God, enemies in our mind, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our lives, in bondage to sin and in darkness, hating God, and the cross of Christ boldly proclaims to us that God alone had to and has provided a way back to restore fellowship with him, and that this is our only means, our only way to fellowship, to life, and to truth. Apart from Christ, apart from his cross, we cannot do nothing We cannot find another road. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. The broad way leads to destruction. And there is no other way to get back to God that we so desperately need. Paul tells us here, Christ made peace between God and man through the blood of his cross. And the blood here is speaking metaphorically of his atonement. And it connects Christ's death with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this is also a term that graphically notes a violent death, like that of the animals. Although Christ did not bleed to death, nor was he a helpless victim, he willingly offered his life to God. And we need to note here, there's nothing mystical about the blood. There's not transubstantiation in the blood. It does, absolutely, it saves us and cleanses us, but only in the sense that his death was the sacrificial death of the final and perfect lamb provided by God. This blood of Christ is applied, it is to be applied in a symbolic sense by faith, in the same way that we see Christ by faith and see him seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the father for us to be reconciled to god by the death of his son is the critical element in salvation the shedding of christ's blood was the only the visible manifestation of his life being poured out in his sacrifice on the cross bearing fully the eternal weight of punishment for our sins this is christianity Christianity says that we have been enemies and estranged from God, deserving the full wrath of his judgment and punishment for our sin, but through Christ and his willingness to die on our behalf, a perfect, suitable sacrifice, now making that peace between us and the Father, God's wrath has truly been satisfied. And it's in these final three verses twenty one to twenty three that Paul kind of switches or transfers transfers from the Father's act of reconciliation now through Christ to the application of this great hymn and these amazing truths, this reconciliatory work to the saints and to us. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This single sentence of application is pointing very strongly to a response that is required in light of God's redemptive work through Christ. Truly, if the ultimate goal of the Father in reconciling, in reconciliation is to present us his elect holy and blameless and beyond reproach, and if God has acted out of his great mercy and love in sending his only begotten son to be the final sacrifice, fully able to atone for the sins of man and with the good news being proclaimed, he has sent and is sending an effective call and grace to enable men to repent and believe, then there remains a great emphasis on human responsibility and accountability to these truths." This, is, this becomes a reality for all true believers. This grace received, enacted upon the soul, the divine reconciliation that takes place, that gift of faith and repentance that are bestowed in a new heart, making it possible to know the Lord, to walk by his power. And this is why Paul also includes this conditional statement, if indeed... He's not expressing a doubt here for the Colossians. It's expressing a statement that that continuance will be the reality of their faith because those who are truly reconciled in Christ will continue in the faith. We see in, in Luke 8, 13, and even 1 John 2, 19, that those who are not really saved, who are not truly reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that they would appear to believe for a while and then fall away in a time of temptation. Or they would depart from us. They would depart from the church because they were really not part of us. So true reconciliation leads to a continuance in faith. You will continue in the faith if you've been truly reconciled. And Paul makes it very clear that they would continue in, and then they would continue in the gospel that they have heard in all of its universal call and claim. The gospel that they and we have heard from Christ through Paul and the other writers in the Word of God, and as I know you have heard from this pulpit and in our sharing and our fellowship, we can never, we can never diminish, we can never get beyond, we can never add to, we can never take away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our daily sustenance. It is our daily life. It is the realm in which we exist now as new members in Christ's body. And we must embrace Christ. We must walk in this gospel by faith. It is not by sight. Daily repenting of our sins, daily turning to him, living by his word, in his word, this is where we find true blessings. This is where we find the benefits and true satisfaction of being reconciled to God, of knowing the sufficiency of Christ. So I ask you again, who do you say that Christ is? Do you know him in this way? Are you progressing in this knowledge of him? Are you hungering more and more and thirsting more and more for his kingdom, his righteousness? Have you come to see just how truly sufficient he is? We need not to go anywhere else. We should not go anywhere else, anyplace else, to anyone else. He alone is our creator. He alone is our redeemer. He alone is the reconciler of sinners to a holy God. And only in him is the fullness of. And the utmost in satisfaction to our souls, day by day. And we are in the daily process of learning these truths, of being edified in these truths, of being corrected in these truths, of being trained in righteousness in these truths. And we must also be applying them and living in them daily, deeper, consistently. This is reality, brothers and sisters. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. We begin with him, and we will end with him, either in judgment or reward. And our reward is him. It's him. Let's pray. Glorious God and Father, thank you for, oh, Lord, thank you for your word that reveals Just how precious, how magnificent, how supreme your beloved Son is and all that he has done for us and all the graces and promises that he desires and is willing to bestow upon us. Father, even with these realities and these promises that are yes and amen in Christ, may he alone, Lord, continue to be the main target, pursuit, aspect, desire of our life, to know him, to see him through the eyes of faith, to behold him clearly, humbly, lovingly, hungrily, thirsting in the word. Oh, Father, so that we may live a life pleasing to you, and further of the proclamations of your truth and the gospel, the good, glorious news of none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. I pray that you would write these words upon our heart this day to, to meditate on them this week. In Jesus' name, amen.